welcome and thank you all for being a part of uh, just our service on today. I have a very special treat uh, that will be helping me have this conversation on black history and the church. Continuing our conversation on, it's complicated, but I believe that I have the foremost. Um, could you let us know, I mean, who is Al Vivian? What does Al Vivian do? Uh, Al Vivian is Joe Vivian's husband uh, <laughs> and the child of the Most High God. Uh, what I do, uh, I run the nation's longest serving diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. Uh, we've worked with some of everybody uh, from United States Army at national security level at the Pentagon down to small organizations. We've worked with Coca-Cola, McDonald's, uh, CNN, uh, you name it, some, some of everybody. We're best known for our two-day race program, which has been, it has been evaluated as the most effective race relations seminar in existence. We get 86 to 94% effectiveness, which is unheard of. In the training industry world, any training program that gets 30 to 35% effectiveness is considered a good effective program. We get almost three times that. Uh, but that's only because, it's not because we're so good at what we do, and I do believe we're good at what we do. We get that effectiveness rating because you're so good. People are genuinely good. We've just made, we've made these topics so taboo that we're afraid to have conversations across our cultural differences because we're afraid we're gonna say something wrong and get labeled as something. But if you create an environment where people can actually have the dialogue and they come to understand, oh, so when my group says that, your group is thinking this, yes, and that's because of the history that has shown us this. Oh, and when we have those conversations, we come to understand each other a lot better. When we understand each other better, then we can work better together and become what God intends us to be. We're all one family. That's the way he designed us to be. We've separated ourselves out uh, for various reasons. Well, amen. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, in having this conversation, and really this is the first time uh, in probably, I'd say maybe two years that I've really, maybe three years even, that I've even had this conversation in a church setting uh, for a host of reasons. But when, I, when we begin having this conversation, I wanted to have someone who has proven experience and a track record in history. Um, What's, what's funny is, and I was talking to you about this in the back, you know, I've known you and Joe now probably going on 13 years, and we've done this in different settings and the things that we do outside of here, but this is the first time they've given both of us microphones together on the stage <laughs> at the dun, same dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, this is like we're allowing the world to sit in on a real personal and honest conversation. Yeah. Um, Al Vivian also serves as one of our overseers for our church because what can happen over a period of time is you can start your church uh, for certain reasons, uh, noble, valid reasons, but because of pressure, because of it's just out of sight, out of mind, you forget the essence of why God called you to exist and part of the reason why we exist as the outlet is so that we could be a place that is truly about living a gospel-centered message, and that means helping all people and really having honest dialogue across cultural lines. And so having you a part of our overseers, um, I, I send up various issues to you to get your wisdom on how do I deal with this subject, how do I deal with that subject, how do I respond in this, and uh, so it's been valuable. I could go on. 
uh, on a personal note, just uh, you and Joe, and just even uh, the, all the hours that we have recently been able to spend. A lot of time. <laughs> together. So I'm excited. So let's get into the word today. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31 is our text scripture. And um, this text scripture even fits with the conversation that we're going to have today. And it says, one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, and, he, and so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. But here's what we're focusing on, especially in this particular topic on today. The second is equally as important, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, and no other commandment is greater uh, than these. And I have watched, I would say, over the last four years in particular, uh, race become a celebrated topic in a sense of it was sensational, it was on the forefront, it was on the minds of every person. I've watched organizations, both for-profit and non-profit, commit to initiatives to make a more equitable society. But just like anything else over time, I've also watched people fade back into the background. I've also watched uh, almost an attack on fulfilling verse 31 of Mark chapter 12, of loving your neighbor as yourself. And um, for you, where did it all begin? Like, you know, the, the heart to want to have these tough conversations and being the practitioner that you are, where did that start for you? Well, for me, it started at home. Um, as you know, and some may know, my father served on Martin Luther King Jr.'s executive staff <clears throat> during the prime era of the civil rights movement. So this, I grew up on this conversation all the time and having things explained to me and how uh, regardless of what is done to us, you still have to love everybody uh, as if they were your neighbor. Uh, and by the way, when the Bible says as your neighbor, they're not talking about because they live in your neighborhood. They're talking about everybody. Uh, and so that's always been a part of my life. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a household where my parents, mom and dad, both stressed that all of us must contribute back to society one way or the other. So my way was via military service. So. I joined the military because I wanted to start my professional career giving back to society. Uh, I had only planned to do three years, ended up doing eight years, um, and then left when I saw Dad on the Oprah show doing our two-day race program. That's when I said, oh, I want to go do that. Uh, I was like, I could have a bigger impact doing that than I could do when I was doing for, for the Army. And so it all started at home, being taught you must love everybody. What happened at that Oprah show? Like, I'm curious now. So your dad was on Oprah. And yes. uh, was it just him sitting down? What, what was he doing that made you say, I need to go and change careers? So, so this was in 1989. This is back when people could call up to the Oprah show and ask questions and make comments. They also had two microphones where people could get in the line and get to the microphone. So they, they created an audience. Um, they took, they took uh, something like 15 people and did our two-day race program. Um, they did it. They did a 12-hour one-day format, which is a, a long time for that session. But anyway, did a 12-hour format, and they videotaped the entire show. The plan was to then call those participants and have three or four of them come on the Oprah show 
and then they would show video clip excerpts of what had happened and get their comments uh, on what they thought when that was happening. As they called the people up who were the participants uh, in the session, all of them gave great comments, so they ended up having all of them on the Oprah show. And so when it was time, to, they would show video clips and then they would give their responses to what they were thinking when that happened. When it was time to go off the air, uh, the phone lines were backed up and the lines to the microphones went all the way to the back of the, of the building. So when it was time to go off the air, they went off air, but then they continued to film. And then the, that night they made the decision to cancel the show that was gonna be on the next day and to show the continuation of Dad's session on, on there. He was the first person to get two full consecutive days on the Oprah show. Uh, only two other people have done it since, that, since then, and that was Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. So I used to joke with Dad and say, they got their own show, you didn't, you know? And, and, and after about three or four times doing that, my dad said, yeah, I did the Oprah show, you didn't, so shut up. So, so I stopped messing with him about that. But yeah, that's, that's what happened on the Oprah show. So, so you mentioned growing up in the home of a civil rights icon. I mean, yes. legend. I mean, I mean and, and really one of the unsung heroes yeah. of the civil rights movement. Um, and you were able to witness the people that we either read about or we see streets named after them or buildings named yeah. after them. You were able to sit in the room with these individuals. Um, but, you know, they were just probably having conversations like you or I or, you know, yep. others would. And so how were ordinary men and women able to bring about substantial change? And I'm talking about the voting rights bill. I'm talking about the civil rights yeah. bill. How were they able, after hundreds of years yes. as a people able to bring about change uh, in the 60s like they were? So, so the significance of that question is, is if you really look deeply, what he's asking is, how is it that a small group of black ministers who had no power at all able to do something that no foreign military has been able to do, and that is to change the most powerful nation in the history of the world? How did a small group of black people do that without throwing a punch, without firing a shot. Something that seemed impossible, but God. Yeah. So they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was on their side. And so they, even though they knew things could happen very negative to them, like being killed, they knew they had to do this because this is what they were called to do. And they talked about that often. When I say, but God, it was that God that says, you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you, that God that says, I will make a way out of no way, it was their faith. That's, that's what made it happen. And, and, and again, God was on their side, and they knew that. So they continued again and again and again and again. So as, they, as God was on their side, were there practical measures that they used in their dialogues, in their discussions, um, that helped to even sway over? Because yes, a particular segment of the population, a particular race can want change, but that doesn't mean that yeah. those in power are going to actually listen to what yeah. they're suggesting. Um, what was it that caught the attention of those who were in power, the dominant group? Got it. Uh, so, uh, so something that, and this is also something I use now, the benefit of being raised, being trained in this job DE&I by someone that sat on King's executive staff is I, I asked dad one day early in my training to do this work, I said, so how are you all able to do that? How could you change this nation? How could you do that? And he said, oh, it's real simple. Now, he said, it's real simple. I'm thinking, no, I don't think so. <laughs> he says, it was hard, but it was simple. He says, 
Because at the time, it was trying to get white America to see the reason or the need to give African Americans and other people of color the same rights and freedoms that they could take for granted. Yeah. He says, we took the two things that white America said it believed in, the Constitution and the Bible. He says that every argument we used was based on the Constitution and the Bible. He said, so, so you say you believe the Lord and you believe in the Bible? And he says, great, we do too. The Bible says, love thy neighbor as thyself. The Bible says, you know, you cannot mistreat people, but yet you're doing that to us. So if you really believe, how can you do that? Yeah. And so, well, you say you believe in the Constitution. We do too. The Constitution says we're all entitled to the same rights and the same freedoms. If we're entitled to the same rights and the same freedoms, then why is it that you won't allow us to have the same kind of jobs? Why would you won't allow us to go to the same restrooms? You won't allow us to sit in the same restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. You know, something that, that people don't think about is little things like we couldn't even try on clothes in, in the stores. Because if blacks wore those clothes, whites would never put those clothes on. So we couldn't even, people couldn't even buy, try on the clothes. They had to buy the stuff and take it home. And then they would almost never let you bring it back because you've now taken it home and worn it. So it's all those kind of things. Had very little money in the, in the first place and now had to buy stuff. And if it didn't fit, you still, you got stuck with it. And it's all those little things that people don't think about in our society that traditionally, for 249 years of slavery and then another century after that. I mean, let all of that sink in. So that stuff doesn't go away instantly. It, it takes a long period of time. And we're still, you know, even when I, people ask me about the civil rights movement, tell me about the civil rights movement time. So we're, we're still in the civil rights movement time. That was just the primary era of the civil rights movement. But yeah, it's all of that stuff. Now this is important because, uh, you know, I, I do the yearly Bible reading and so it takes you through the same, what you think the same chapter, same verse, but over the weekend the reading had me look a little differently in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, the Lord was giving commandments to Moses on what happens when you get out of captivity and you're going into the promised land. Uh, but what stood out to me in Deuteronomy, I, wanted, I wrote it down too because I said this is just so good. Deuteronomy chapter 10. He said that I want to make sure that you all tell your children and, their chi and your children's children of what I've done for you because your children weren't there when I did X, Y, and Z. Your children weren't there when I did X, Y, and Z. And so when it comes to why we're having this conversation, why I believe that this is foremost within our churches is because I'm thinking of the next generation. I believe with all my heart that Generation Z will be the ones who save democracy. They're the ones that we have to protect. They're the ones that we have to continue to tell the story and continue to remind them because a lot of them were, were born post, including myself and probably uh, Generation X, we were born post-civil rights. I, I would say probably when you were born, there probably, there was no civil rights. When I was born, I had no civil rights. And I want people to put that in context. We try to act like that was centuries ago. When I was born, black people could not vote everywhere in the country. I mean, let that sink in. Uh, and, and let's be real honest, everybody black can't vote now. Uh, voter suppression is real, and it, it is, I mean, it is massively real. And SB 202, the, the state bill 202 in Georgia that was put into place right after uh, the state flipped from red to blue, totally, it made it much harder for certain types of people to vote by design. And, and let all of that stuff sink in. It's, so everybody talked about how that bill said you can't pass out water to people in lines for two hours and you can't do this and you can't do that. And that was, this, that was the red herring. That was the thing to get people to look at that and pay attention to that. 
while ignoring the other stuff. The, the SB 202 now legally allows the, the state of Georgia to do all the stuff that they were asked to do illegally by the president at that time. They can now do that legally because that bill was changed to allow that to happen. So that stuff is still, but we're still in civil rights times. Yeah. But, but um, not only, to, that, that question you asked is so, actually a brilliant question in that it also leads to, talking about the next generations, it talks about why the big push right now to ban black history from schools. Yeah. Because if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat your history. My people perish because of lack of knowledge. Yeah. But that's not just withholding knowledge from black folk, brown folk, red folk, and yellow folk, it's from white folks as well. I truly believe people are genuinely good. But if good people don't know the real history of the country, it's easy to believe, oh, hey, you know, yeah. what are y'all complaining about? You can vote. I mean, come on, you got the same opportunities. No, we really don't. And, and even the Voting Rights Act that was signed into law in 1965, a lot of people don't realize this, it was not a permanent act. It's temporary. There's a clause in it that said that it had to be revoted on in 1970, had to be revoted on again in 1975, had to be revoted on again in 1996, and each time it passed massively. It's going to have to be voted on again Hold on, in don't 2030. Tell me. Don't, oh, you told them. Oh, I told them. I'm you sorry. told them. That was one of but, your questions. But, well, no, one, one of the things that I wanted to see is how many of you all knew that the Voting Rights Act was not a permanent, you knew it was not permanent? Yeah, see, very who, few. Who did not know that the Voting Rights Act was not, yeah. It's, we just assume that it's set in stone. It is not. It is, it is not. And, and as our demographics change more and more, that concerns me more and more. Uh, as, as our numbers grow, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, Native Americans, Arabs, and others, is there going to be a discomfort to where some will say, you know what, I don't know if I want those people to have the right to vote, well, which is why the voter suppression. Well, we're also watching gerrymandering or redrawing the district lines. Redrawing the district lines, yes. Uh, which, which makes all of these things, again, so important because if we have, like my son is born into a time where he can go to school with whoever he wants to go to school with. He can vote uh, because he was born as an American citizen. He, he can, uh, you know, uh, uh, go to different water fountains. He doesn't know any of those type of That's things. Correct. So without understanding what makes up the society that he lives in, he'll be oblivious and ignorant and will not know when things are being passed, when to use his voice or how to be apathetic. And that's why I believe that uh, the church is so powerful. Oh, absolutely. If, if the body of Christ cannot get this right, then who can? You know, we, we're supposed to be the ones. Martin Luther King Jr. said, now he's been dead since 68. He yeah. said this well before that. He said, if the church is the light of the world, it must be the taillight, he says, because it ain't leading nothing right now when it comes to issues of equality and justice. And he was spot on. He was spot on. The, many churches run from this topic, or they just preach one side and avoid the other. So when you were talking about the music, I loved when you talked about it was this blend of, yeah. of, 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 of gospel, uh, of, of, the, of the black culture with the white European culture. with. The, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to all be together Absolutely. across all those differences. Absolutely. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to church, having been on the road with you now, 
I would say, what am I coming on? I think I'm 15 months in now. I know you're, you're 30 years in, I'm 15 months in. Like, so, so when we do our introductions at different trainings, Al will go through his rap sheet of like all of his accomplishments, all the companies work for. He says, all right, Vince, go ahead, introduce yourself. And I'm like, hi, I stayed at a Motel 6, you know, like. <laughs> Uh, but he but, downplays his brilliance, though he he really does. <laughs> oh shucks. <laughs> uh, but but when it when it comes to just the the having this conversation in church, I have found that we have been in some of the most powerful rooms in the country, and this conversation is easier to be had. We're talking about loving thy neighbor as yourself. That is yes. the basis of this conversation. So we're going out into what people call secular world or, or the world or the yep. culture. Yep. And we're talking to people who access billions of dollars. And, and, and once you begin to lay the, the facts in front of them and say, let's work on building a bridge, it's like very few and far between do you have yeah. pushback. And even the pushback after the second day, they're like, man, Al, you're my best friend. Let's go fishing, you know? <laughs> but when it comes to church, yeah. this, I believe is the biggest mission field for this conversation yep. after being outside of the church. I have, I have conversations about race and cultural differences much easier with corporate CEOs than I do in churches. It, I get the biggest pushback in churches. I, I get, because People will take a scripture and twist it to say what they want to say and made it seem like you're not even supposed to ask that question. You're not yeah. supposed to talk about that stuff. Oh, we don't have time for division in the body of Christ. I'm like, you got division in the body of Christ. You know, let's fix that. Uh, one of the things I love about this church, it is a coming together of two churches. Yeah. You know, a, a, a black church with a, with a traditionally white church. I think that's awesome. That's how we get the best, by, by, by bringing together what each group has to bring to the table. I think that's, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. If we went by what we as a nation say we believe in, e pluribus unum, you know, it used to be on the every dollar bill. From our, one translation of that is from our diversity comes our strength. From our many, one is what it means. And if we can all really grab hold of that, we should be leading everything in the world because we all came from somewhere else. We got the mixture of every, just almost every major country is right here. That should be our strength. We make it our weakness. You know, how would our society look, and I'm gonna do a, a, a what if. How would our society look today if the leading voice in the nonviolent movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the leading voice of the evangelical movement, Billy Graham, what if they had worked together mm. with, along biblical lines? How would our society look today? So, so let's look at that really. Okay. So, so if, you, if you look at I'm going to put this down. I feel like just talking now. I'm, I'm kind of chained together. King's following was very diverse. Billy Graham's was not. Billy Graham was afraid, being bluntly honest, was afraid to coalesce with King because he knew that he would lose a lot of his followers, yeah. especially during that time frame. Now, when he was outside the country, Billy Graham had more freedom to say what he wanted to say. So I have a video clip of him in South Africa during apartheid, making the statement that Jesus wasn't white. He said that there. He says he would look more like the Indian people in the audience. He was a Jesus man of- Jesus wasn't white. Right, no. I mean, and, and, 
And, and, and think about this. He was Hebrew. He was Semitic. He was, he was Palestinian. Yeah. He, was, he was not white. He was a man of color. He wasn't like dark, but he wasn't white. He, was, he, was, he looked more like Indian people of today. And if you think, first century Jews were Semitic. They were Hebrew. They were, they were not white. But yet the, most, the vast majority of the imagery has it otherwise. And, and I always say that if people can't accept what color he was, have they really accepted him? Because if you got to make him something other than what he was to act like you're following him, have you really accepted him? And so, so, so we should all be able to accept him no matter what color he was, which is why the black church followed him because of what he believed and stood for versus what color he came wrapped in, which is what Christ wanted us to do. God made us all these different colors. I mean, would he have made us that if he didn't want us to be together? Would he have allowed us in the body of Christ if he felt that we shouldn't be together? It is, it is all of that. And until we get to that, we will never be fully accepted. We will never be effective as the body of Christ until we really grab hold of everybody out there. He didn't, he didn't say go out and bring the lost who look like you into the kingdom, you know? Yeah. But we're still having that fight. I'm trying to see where I want to go with this because in having this conversation and being committed to this conversation is two different things. That's correct. Um, because once you begin having conversations and, and really cultivating a culture of curiosity and wanting to know about all people. So uh, for me in, in doing this work with you, what it's helped even in my own life see is where I have not been taught about indigenous people's histories. Right. Um, there are so many things that when we go to areas in the country where they are predominant, they're telling us, and I'm like, I, I would have never known had not someone felt safe enough to share something yeah. with us. And it makes much, a much more richer experience uh, in life. Um, you know, I, I love how in, in sessions uh, you have had people tell you, you know, Al, I don't see you as black. You know, you're, you're, you're one of the good ones. <laughs> uh, and how, although in their mind, that was a very, it was a, it was a compliment to, wow, you're educated. Wow, you're articulate. Wow, you speak the king's English. <laughs> um, how much that minimizes yes. who you are. Yes. And if we as the church could make it a point to see people for who they are, yeah. And, and meet them where they are. Yeah. You know? That sounds like the gospel. That, that is the gospel. <laughs> you know, so it's funny, like, whenever I would have people say things like, you know, well, don't see color, you know? You know I never thought of you as black, you know? I was like, well, what is it you thought of me as? You know? I mean, it's, and it's, what is it? I don't see color. And they're looking at me when they say it. I'm like, if you don't see color, why are you looking at me when you say it, but you're not looking at anybody else? I mean, it's, and it's all of those things, you know? Uh, uh, you know, I, I often would say, especially when we do the seminars, I'll say, um, uh, that would be like me looking at a woman and say, I never thought of you as a woman. I, you know, <laughs> I'd be stealing from her who she is. Yeah. If, if you can't see people's differences, you can't really see who they are and what they have to deal with as a result of that. Yeah. And, and as an African-American male in America, I have to also be very real about the fact that, you know, when people, I, when I get stopped by the police, and that has happened multiple times when I've done nothing wrong, uh, when I get stopped by the police, they're questioning what kind of a person I am. 
but they're not questioning whether I'm here legally. When they stop Latinos, they have to stop thinking about, they have to think about do they even think that they even belong here? Yeah. You know, it's a whole nother world. And so we, we've got to all learn to put ourselves in other people's shoes and see, how would I see the world if I lived that? Yeah. You know, when I'm going through the airports, and I travel a lot, when I'm going through security, you know, they're not stopping me because they think I got a bomb. But you know, I look at how they do people who are Muslim or of Arab, of Arab descent, or people they just think are. I have a good friend uh, who's Latino, Dionardo uh, Pazania, and he's also a diversity consultant. And that first week after flights started flying again, after 9-11, so later, about two months after that, he and I were together, and he says, have you, have you flown since 9-11? I said, yeah, I have. He said, what's that like? I said, it's different. He says, yeah. He says, that week after, 9, after they first started letting the planes fly again, he says, I had six flights that one week. He says, I'm not a mathematician. He says, statistics is not my specialty. He said, but I know six out of six ain't random. <laughs> Every flight he got on, he got pulled to the side, they go through his bags and all that, because they thought he was Middle Eastern, you know? And, and it's all of that, and he's not, but even that, it's all of that kind of stuff that happens all the time. But if we really believe what the gospel says, then we'd be judging. My wife and I were going on a trip shortly after 9-11 ago, I was doing something work-related, and this is the, that first week, and the lines at the airport were ultra long. And this guy behind me goes, these fools don't know what they're doing. And so I look at him and I say, I, I, look, I want them to check. I, I don't mind it taking longer. He said, no, 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 no. And he says, he says I, I'm from Israel. He says, they, they, we know what we're doing, we do it. They, they don't know what they're doing. And he starts describing how they do the security checks. So we got all of their, all their uh, uh, security folk, they've been trained. They either have advanced degrees uh, and, and they know what in sociology and psychology and they know what they're doing. He says, oh, we start off with three, we start off with three lines. We start one long line, then they divide them into three. They look at the people and they go, okay, you get in that line. Uh, you get in that line. You go in that line. They're reading their body language and everything. We're just checking. He said, and this is how he said it. He says, he says, here, they're just checking their bags. He says, where I'm from, we check their minds. Mm. And so the, depending upon how they initially analyze you determines which line they have you get in. Then you go through a stricter review based on what line they sent you to. Yeah. Yeah, it's all of that stuff. But we, we don't do that. Man. I'm trying to figure out which bag I want to open. <laughs> the one with the bomb in it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, I got to live here after this, so I need yeah. to ask the right questions. Um, because I want to focus now in on the church, the church at large. Yeah. Um, we're, we're coming up on another election season. Yes. And I am. We're in another election we're, season. We're, we're yeah. in another election yeah. season. And let me tell you, I'm still just trying to get over 2016 right now. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're in 2024. Uh, just because. I had so many, I guess, naive expectations of what church leadership should do and should say and how we should carry ourselves. Yeah. Um, I believe that if we really uphold the Bible as church leaders, that we won't be invited to one political party's cookout or the other political party's cookout. There will be times that you upset some parts of the aisle That's because correct. you're standing on the word of God. Yep. 
Unfortunately, that's not what I'm seeing in uh, the church with the money and the influence. Yes. Um, those who are in power understand that we have a unique opportunity to address at one time thousands of people with a message and their hearts are open to receive from God. Yeah. And they know that if you could do a slight influence, that you could influence really in these communities a voting block and a voting base. Yes. Um, when we look at um, American history, the church was used as a place of organization. And historically, the black church was the only place that we could organize yes. freely in order to mobilize for community issues. Yes. So with that being said, now that you know, we, we have great power, great influence um, in how we are to communicate as Christian leaders, how do we as a church stay away from conditioning the people to be single issue voters? Mm. Before, even, before I even answer that part, so okay. don't let me forget that. Because oh, okay, you made me think of something else. You talked about it was the only place we could organize. Yeah. It's also where the majority of black people during the early, early times learned how to read was in church. It was illegal for blacks to read in America for a very long time, illegal. And so in church, you could learn some of the, one of the earliest books ever written by a black person, um, it was because of church that her book could be written. So she would write pages of the book and it was, there were whites that went to this church too that were on her side and she would pass them the pages, they put it in their hymnal and take it out with them and take it to the publishing company so they could then type it up and get ready to print it. And when she finished the whole book, then they printed it and sent it out. But it was illegal for her to even know how to read. So you know if she put out a book where she could write a book, they know she could read. So she, they wouldn't allow it to be done. So she would sneak it out page after page after page. Like every weekend at church, she'd give them a few pages. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was the only place we had any authority. Yeah. Uh, in, in, the, in the old school, it, so back in the 50s and 60s and every time before that, you know, we couldn't work at an IBM or a, you know, or, a, or, or a Georgia Power Company or wherever. We, we, you know, so our best and our brightest, you either had to teach or preach. Those are the two jobs you were guaranteed if you had a degree, you teach or you preach. Uh, and so, yeah, that's the only place we could do anything. And it's not by accident that the church is where um, the civil rights movement sprung out of. And if you notice, there were a good number of whites who were on board with King who helped King. Yeah. You know, and with, I, without and that know coalition, that. it yeah. wouldn't have been. Have to have a coalition. It would That's not right. have happened without that. That's right. In fact, it wasn't until stuff was televised where people in the North could actually see what was happening in the South. You know, they all knew it, but seeing it on the screen is a whole nother world. And when they could see video, film of this happening, it was like, oh, well, we can't stand by and watch that. So Bloody Sunday had a big impact on how everything got changed and all of those things, because they, they, they then saw it. But it was the body of Christ, it was church that made that possible. You know, we do have the, the uh, clip that uh, there are people who believe that that clip helped to sway. Uh. <laughs> so he's talking to clip with, so you have the clip? Yeah. You want to show, can you show the clip? Yeah. Can you show that clip? Y'all want to see a video? <laughs> <laughs> Set up the video for us. So, so where are we on time? They're all right. All right. <laughs> Somebody said, take your time. I heard I think, right, right. I but heard nobody said it. Nobody, nobody said, said it. it. <laughs> 
they were thinking it. <laughs> so, 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 uh, this video is of my father leading a voter registration drive in Dallas County, Alabama. Um, uh, chuckling with my wife about that. She knows where I'm going with that. In, in, uh, uh, my dad trying to get people registered to vote, and the sheriff was stopping them from registering. Uh, so show the clip. I'll let it go from there. Yeah. You are breaking the injunction by not allowing these people to come inside this courthouse and wait. This courthouse does not belong to Sheriff Clark. This courthouse belongs to the people of Dallas County, and these are the people of Dallas County, and they have come to register. And you know this within your own heart, Sheriff Clark. You're not as evil a man as you act. You know in your heart what is right. You just refuse to do it because you want these people behind you. And as sheriff of this county, if you're deeply concerned, you will go call the registrar rather than keep people from standing inside. What you're really trying to do is intimidate these people, and by making them stand in the raid, keep them from registering to vote. And this, this is the kind of violation of the Constitution, the violation of the court order, the violation of decent citizenship. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. I'm looking down the line, seeing all the people who've been in jail for felonies. That's what I'm looking Precisely at. Precisely right. And if, they, and if they're not fit to vote, you'll be able to find that out. But you'll not know it until they're, until they're on the registrar. And many of those have a felony action because Sheriff Clark made them a felony action, not because they were rightfully So some key points for me about the video clip and something that people miss often. So early on in the video, you notice he says to Sheriff Clark, he says, you're not as evil a man as you act. He was trying to connect with him and get him to see that, hey, in, in other words, even when this man was being ultra evil to him, he was saying, 
I see the good in you. You know, he's trying to connect with the person. I see the good in you. You're not as evil a man as you act. You know, even when he turned his back, you can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back on, on the idea of justice. Notice when Sheriff Clark walked back up the steps, dad walked right behind him, not getting too close, but not staying away from, letting him know that this debate does not go away from you walking away from it. Something that people don't understand about the civil rights movement is they were strategists. Everything was, everything was strategic all the time. They, they knew what could happen, but they knew that if they weren't, if something didn't happen, if they ever backed down, nothing would ever change. So they knew their lives were on the line all the time. When Sheriff Clark hit him, later in an interview, Sheriff Clark mentioned that he had hit dad so hard that he broke his own finger when he hit him, you know? And, and it was, but God. So dad ran track when he was in high school and he used to also practice running backwards downstairs. And so when Sheriff Clark hit him, he said he would have gotten hit, hurt and hit harder had he not backed down the steps as Clark was coming towards him because he learned how to do that when he was in high school. How that happened, I don't know. But it's all those things. Everything was strategic that they did, everything. Wanting to get arrested. So when they hit him, he said, don't beat us, arrest us. Because if he could just beat people and then send them away, it would never be on record. Now, when you said the video piece, the only, that, Andy Young said that that, excuse me, Ambassador Young said that that single event did more to get the voting rights bill signed into law than any other single event before that. Because it got, there was a, there was a TV crew from one of the national networks, ABC, NBC, or CBS National was there and they caught it on film. So it went on the national news the next day, and that had a huge impact on swaying people to say, oh, what's happening there is not right, and then Bloody Sunday, immediately after that, changed everything to where the voting rights bill got signed into law. So I would say, you know, because this conversation, of course, we can have it, you know, on a one-way car ride, five, six hours, and we don't have five, six hours, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and in my first closing. And in my first closing. <laughs> but I, I want to, begin to put into our church our next steps because this is not just something we do in February. Yeah. This is something that we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and every leap year, 366 days a year. Yeah. Uh, in fact, people have such a, a negative connotation toward the word social justice. Oh, but yeah. when you look at the definition of what social justice is, it, in its more pragmatic form, if someone needs clothing, we clothe them. Correct. If there is someone who's hungry, we feed them. Yes. If there is someone in jail, we visit them. Yes. If someone is brokenhearted, we help to comfort them. If someone's and rights are being taken away, we fight to ensure that they have their rights. That's right. Because Especially in a nation that says we're all entitled to the same rights and freedoms. It should be easier here than anywhere else. And I love, really, you and, and Joe have reiterated this uh, and it's become a part of, like I always say, no, but you and Joe actually have said it first. It's not that we're being a voice for the voiceless because everyone has a voice, yes. but we have an opportunity to amplify the voices that are being overlooked and yeah. not being heard. Yeah. And so I, I wanna shift the conversation now to from a position of being passive, meaning, you know, I wasn't a part of that, uh, my, my family wasn't a part of that. 
Uh, I don't belong to some crazy organization, uh, and I love everybody. Yeah. Uh, my best friend is fill in the blank. To <laughs> um, when we see injustice, how do we get into a position where we're able to act and yeah. be an acting force? Uh, there was a guy by the name of, I don't know if you heard of him, Reverend C.T. Vivian. Uh, his his uh, phrase was, It's in the action. It's in the action. It's in the action that you know who you are. Yeah, so how do we as the church begin, because we're, we're not going to solve everything and have world peace by tomorrow, but what can we do? What is the baseline step that we could begin to take um, the, as the, the church? The initial scripture, love thy neighbor as thyself. Um, you, know, you, you, you can't just talk it, you got to walk it. You got to put some legs to it, you know. Um, it's 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 coming to live out what Scripture says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be there for each other, especially within the body of Christ. But we're supposed to be there. And even you mentioned the social justice piece. Jesus Christ was my social justice superhero. Yeah. He was pushing for justice for everybody in a social environment. That's that's social justice. It's, it's working to make sure that people are not overlooked, but people are given the same rights and freedoms. You know, it is, it is all of that stuff that, that, that we have to do. Um, and there are multiple scriptures that, that make that point real clear. Um, even the, oh, John 13. Huh? John 13, 34 and 35. Give, give, me, give, me, give me the verse. Give me the verse. I know. They I, need I, to I, throw it on I, the I screen. I can't find the address for it. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, they, they could throw it on the screen for us in John 13, 34 and 35. So now I'm giving you a new commitment. Good, they great. real good. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you yes. should love each other. Verse 35, yeah. your love for one another, that will prove to the world yeah. that you are my disciples. Even when you mentioned earlier that you know, dominant groups and non-dominant. So even notice the terminology. We don't talk about majority, minority. We talk dominant, non-dominant, because numbers mean nothing if you have no power. Women outnumber men in America. Women are the majority, but we live in a patriarchal society where men still get to call the shots. So majority, minority. South Africa during apartheid, black South Africans outnumbered white South Africans 10 to one. Majority means nothing. What matters is who has the power, the dominant group. So, so <clears throat> I have a lot of privilege in America. I walk in loads of privilege. Now, a lot of times people are not accustomed to hearing a black guy talking about diversity saying he has privilege. I do. There are, there are 13 recognized social groups in the U.S. I'm in the dominant group in 11 of the 13. That's a lot of power. I'm male, I'm straight, I'm college educated, um, I'm able-bodied, um, I'm, I'm not morbidly unattractive. That's actually one of the categories. I, I, I was jokingly saying I'm not Denzel, but I'm not the total opposite. But, but I mean, I, I have a lot of privilege. What I, re what I really want you to hear about that, though, is this, these are unearned privileges. See? I didn't earn being male. I just happened to be born male. I didn't earn being straight. just happened to be born straight. I didn't earn the only, of, of, of the 11 that I'm in the dominant group, I can, I can only partially take credit for two of them that I, that I had any say in, and that was my education. Yes, I had to study real hard to get my degree. However, I even had privilege in that. I, I got to go to college not because I was like, I, I jokingly say coming out of high school, I didn't graduate cum laude, I graduated thank you laude. 
right, so, so, so I, you know, I, I couldn't have gotten a scholarship, so if my parents couldn't have afforded to send me to college, I wouldn't have been able to go to college. So I had privilege on that. I make a good income. I work really, really hard. But at the same time, I also have to understand that I'm in the job I'm in because my father hired me. I didn't have to interview. <laughs> Say, hey, Dad, I want to come work with you. Okay. <laughs> so, so there was privilege in that. So there are a lot of people that walk around with a whole lot of unearned privilege and act like they earn everything they have. There but for the grace of God go I. You know, had it not been for him and the blessings upon that he put upon me, I wouldn't be where I am. And so, to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. Bringing it back to scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. I've been given all these privileges. That means I have a requirement that goes with that. I have to speak up on behalf of women when I see sexism because I have privilege in that area. I have to speak up on behalf of Latinos when I see them denied. I have to speak up on behalf of all those who are not like me. And, and, it's, and we gotta all understand it. And in, in the body of Christ, like no other, we should understand that. If we're supposed to be the model for everybody else and America's supposed to be the model for every other country, we're in trouble. Because we're not doing those things. And that means a lot. It, we would be so much further along if we actually walked in that love for each other. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing we cannot do when we want to do it. Nothing. One other thing I got to add, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. Even, even the, and then I'm, then I'm going to shut up unless you ask another question. <laughs> then, 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 so the, the whole thing about race, biologically, race does not exist. It, it doesn't exist. It's a man-made social construct to determine who we're going to treat bad, who we're going to treat good based upon what color they are. Scientifically, biologically, race does not exist. So, so you would think that when the human genome code was cracked, that that would have been the primary story. Because when the human genome code was cracked, it proved that we are 99.5 times identical. We are 10 times more similar to each other than fruit flies are to each other. I can't tell one fruit fly from another, can you? We are 10 times more identical than that. In fact, if, if you and I spit in the tube and send it out to be analyzed, chances are you and I are more genetically similar than me and Vince are. Because there's more variation within a race than there is across races. Because people tend to have sex and get married and have kids within their own race, so there's more variation within a race than there is across races. We are in other words, what I just said is, we went to war against ourselves as a nation based on something that doesn't even exist. We've passed laws and legislations to deny people access to things because of something that doesn't exist. We are that dumb. And we're supposed to be an advanced society. And again, when it was proven with the cracking of the human genome code, you would think that would have been the lead story in the news and that that would be put in every textbook throughout the country, and yet it's not. We can fix this if we want to. We can fix this if we want to. And what really bothers me is I'm watching the body of Christ, segments of the body of Christ, being the ones that are pushing us against each other more than anything else. Let that sink in. 
And it goes back to the question of if King and Billy Graham had ever really think of where we could be. This I'm is powerful. Now. Yeah. Let's, let's put, a, put a bow on that one because there's so much that we could say. As, as you can see, we could, we could keep going. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't even think we've even scratched the surface yet. Uh, but I have enjoyed this, this hour that we've had to sit down and just have a conversation that you and I would have personally yeah, on a time. microphone uh, for others to hear and, and to be a part of. But what I want to do is I want to close out in prayer today for us all as we also uh, prepare for water baptisms to close service. Uh, and I'm just praying that as the church, we hold true to the great commandment of love true love, pure love toward God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but truly asking the Lord to help us love our neighbor, As all of our neighbors, our black neighbor, our white neighbor, our red neighbor, our gay neighbor, our Palestinian neighbor, yes. as we love ourselves. Yes. So let us pray today. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the, the opportunity the, the influence that we have to gather together to have a conversation about what it means to live out your gospel, to do your great commission, to make disciples in our current context. Father, there may be times where we may get weary in well-doing, but as a church, Lord, we say that we will not faint and we will reap the harvest. What is that harvest, Lord? It's a harvest of souls, a harvest of lives that are transformed and impacted by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Help this church, Lord, be all that you called us to be, that none of us are connected by accident, but we have a divine assignment to be your light in the earth today. So as we leave this place, help us to continue to cultivate a culture of curiosity. Help us to grow in genuine relationship with others who may look different, may think different, who may be different, so that we could learn one from another and be the picture of the body, your glorious church that you're coming for without spot or wrinkle. We thank you for the unity that comes through Christ and also the harmony that comes with living together as one. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.